Hear the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on pages 984 and 985 in the Pew Bible. But what praise comes from enduring patiently when you have sinned and are beaten for it? But if you endure steadfastly when you've done good and suffer for it, this is commendable before God. You are called to this kind of endurance because Christ suffered on your behalf. He left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor did he ever speak in ways meant to deceive. When he was insulted, he did not reply with insults. When he suffered, he did not threaten revenge. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds you were healed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For about 12 years, I served on a committee called the Conference Board of Ordained Ministry, whose primary job was to interview and evaluate persons who were seeking ordination as clergy in the United Methodist Church here in Florida. Over that time, I developed a personal batch of favorite questions that I love to ask candidates in the area of theology, questions like this. If Jesus had died a natural death, would He still be our Messiah? In other words, if Jesus had died of, say, pneumonia instead of dying on a cross, would we still consider Him to be our Lord? Or how about this? If Jesus had died in, say, His early 20s instead of at the age of 33, would we still consider Him to be our Savior? In other words, before Jesus had began His whole public ministry at the age of 30, before He had done any teaching or healing, if He had died before any of that, would we still call Him our Lord? Or if, if Jesus were, say, from Southeast Asia, or from Central Europe, or from Latin America, anything other than a Middle Eastern Jew, would He still be our Lord? I'd ask these questions, and I'd begin them with, what if, what if, what if? And I would love to see the looks on the faces of those candidates as they're trying to figure out those answers. And I'd suggest to you these are good questions, questions that are good not just because they're a fun, playful, creative mental exercise, but because these are questions that get right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian of what it means to follow this Jesus and what this cross really means. And if there's ever a time, ever a season of the year for us to think about these questions, it's during Lent. Now, theologians have developed a fancy word to describe the answers that the church has come up with to these questions. The word is atonement. It is that act which Jesus did for us that atoned our sins, that paid the price, if you will, that rebuilt the relationship with God, that 
was enabled us to be in a right relationship with Him. And theologians have developed all sorts of theories to explain the answers to these questions. And it will be that during this season of Lent, we're going to look at a different understanding of exactly what the cross means, what Jesus did for us in a series that we're calling, Why Did He Do It?, And our hope is that by the end of this Lenten journey, by the time we celebrate Easter morning, you will have a fuller understanding of all the diversity of answers that one could give to exactly how the cross saves us and why Jesus did what He did for us. And I'm going to tell you right now, with each theory of atonement that we cover each of these Sundays, you're going to like some of them and you're not going to like some of them. Some of them are going to be a surprise to you. Others you will have known for basically your whole faith journey. Some you're going to walk away on a Sunday morning and go, wow, I'd never thought about atonement that way. I'd never thought about the cross that way. This changes everything. The entire way I look at the cross, every way that I follow Jesus now is changed because of this particular atonement theory. And then there are some where you're going to walk out and go, that's dumb. Why would anyone believe that? You're going to have different reactions to those. But I want to tell you that each of these atonement theories, first of all, is biblical. They're grounded in Scripture. And the second thing is they are rooted in Christian history. There have been legions of Christian faithful who have been attracted to each of these atonement theories. And if there's anything that we learn about these seven theories, is that somehow, at least in this matter, the church throughout its history has agreed to disagree because there isn't one single exclusive atonement theory that the church has agreed as the reason for why Jesus died or what the cross does for us. It has allowed there to be differences of opinion, a plethora of perspectives, and it's a reminder to us in this very polarized age, both in the community and in the world and in the church, that it is possible for the church to allow a variety of opinions and differences on matters as long as it can agree on what is centrally important. And we begin this morning with what I think is the most prevalent atonement theory of all, and for some people, the most befuddling. It's an atonement theory called substitutionary blood atonement theology. Substitutionary meaning Jesus took our place, and blood meaning, well, there's blood involved. And it begins, of course, with this understanding that in the ancient Near Eastern world, there is this sacrificial atonement theory that is built on the idea that if humans are separated from God, there needs to be blood shed in order to reconcile humans with God. It begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. The very first profession we hear about in the Bible is Abel, the son of Adam and Eve. And what is he? He's a shepherd. And what's his job? It's to sacrifice the sheep and to offer the blood and the carcass of that animal as an offering to God. And God is very pleased by that. Then, of course, you skip ahead to the book of Exodus. It's the founding story for the entire Old Testament. 
And it's there that we discover that when the Israelites were enslaved under Pharaoh, and Pharaoh being reluctant to let the slaves go, what is it that finally convinces Pharaoh to release the Israelites? It's that tenth and final plague where the angel of death sweeps over Egypt and kills the firstborn of every household unless, unless on the doorpost of that home is blood sprinkled by that family. When the angel of death passes over that home and sees the blood, then that family is saved from the wrath of God. That becomes the founding story for, of course, the entire sacrificial system of the entire Hebrew world, where people would then go to the tabernacle or go to the temple. If they have wronged each other or wronged God, they would bring their animal to the priest, and the priest would do a ritualistic slaughtering of that animal and sacrifice it on the altar, and the blood would spill everywhere, and it would be sent up to God as a way of reconciling who reconciling God with humanity. If you want biblical support for substitutionary blood theology, all you got to do is take a big marker and circle the entire Old Testament. It's there. It's the basis for what the New Testament authors would think about when they would think about what Jesus did on the cross. There, the gospel writers would think about Jesus as being the sacrificial lamb, and it's through His blood that was shed on the cross, through the blood that was shed on the crown of thorns and the nail prints on His hands and feet and through the piercing of His side, that that death, and only through that death, could Jesus have atoned for our sins, which is why Jesus had to be a Middle Eastern Jew. Because if he was born in any other part of the world, then that would have required a recasting of the entire Hebrew sacrificial system. Jesus was the right person at the right time to die in the right way to satisfy all of what was required in the blood sacrificial system of the Jewish world. That's, that's a prevalent theme throughout not just the Old Testament and the New Testament, but then the early Christian thinkers and writers jumped all over it. Virtually every founding thinker of the Christian church, from Anselm to Augustine to Justin Martyr, on the way through John Calvin, would adopt blood atonement theology as their atonement theology of choice. And then the hymn writers got involved. So many songs, so many hymns that have been built into the cultural vocabulary of the Christian church, so many songs that are in our hymnal that you, you may know. I mean, I mean, I think we could do a little bit of call and response here. What can wash away our sin? You blood atonement theologians, listen to you. Look in our hymnal. There's, a, there's one called, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. We don't sing that one too often around here. <laughs> there is power in the blood is another song. Alas, but did my Savior bleed. There's, there's so many blood atonement hymns in our hymnal. It is there. And in fact, later in, in a few minutes when Sally stands behind this altar and, and we prepare for communion, she's going to lift up the bread and then she's going to lift up the cup. And what's she going to say when she lifts up that cup? She's going to say, in the words of Jesus, this is my what? Blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Blood atonement theology is so prevalent in the Christian church, and so it has to be part of the conversation when we're answering the question, why did he do it? But I'm not going to lie to you. There are some people who scratch their heads at this stuff. First of all, there may be some of you for whom this is your formative atonement theology. This could be the way that you understand the work of Jesus on the cross. You find great meaning from it. It has transformed your view of God and of yourself, and it has been the pathway for you to discover the salvation of God. And I want you to know you're not alone. You have ample biblical evidence and Christian history to back you up. But there are some of us this morning who consider this whole blood stuff, and you go, what? Popular Christian author and theologian Dallas Willard has coined a phrase to talk about Christians who are obsessed with blood atonement theology. He calls them vampire Christians. I love that. Like twilight Christians, true blood Christians, because for them it's all about the blood. But there are some people who consider this blood atonement theology and are so completely turned off by it. And their main argument is, it's been 2,000 years since we've had a sacrificial theology, a, a sacrificial atonement culture. There is no more temple. There is no more need to shed blood. This doesn't make any sense. And then they would go a step further and say, doesn't this just condone the shedding of blood? Isn't this just a few steps away from a kind of redemptive violence that depends on the shedding of blood? Can't we be a little more sensible or rational about all this? Never mind the fact that for some people, all that blood stuff just freaks them out. They read all these passages and they think that they're watching an episode of ER or going through an emergency room or watching that new Wolverine movie, which I hear is just filled with blood. And so people are turned off by it. And I want you to know it's okay. Again, this, this atonement theology series is built on this idea that on this matter, the church has agreed to disagree. If, if you find great meaning in blood theology, then bank your life on it. But if not, then stick around. There's going to be another theory or two that comes your way. And I'll admit to you that I've got my personal favorites. And as I've thought through them, there are pros and cons to each one. And while I have my own personal favorites, all of them have value. But I want to remind you of this. Regardless of how you feel about substitutionary blood atonement theology, this one thing is something all of us can agree on. It is this, that none of us can save ourselves. Only God has done all that is required for our salvation. If you go down the street to our local Barnes & Noble or to Inkwood Books or any of our book retailers or go to Amazon.com and do cruising for books there, you'll notice that one of the biggest, most popular sections in a bookstore is the self-help section. Stacks and stacks, titles and titles of books that are built on the premise that if you just follow these formulas, you can live your best life now. 
You can lose 30 pounds in 30 days. You can win all sorts of friends. You can bake the perfect chocolate cake. You can do any of these things as long as you simply buy this book and ascribe to its methods, and you can help live the best possible life you can. Now, that may work for selling books. That, that might work in the pop psychology world. But in matters of sin and salvation, it doesn't work. None of us can save ourselves. Self-help does not save. Only God can do that. And substitutionary blood atonement theology underscores this point more powerfully than any of the rest, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Only Jesus had the capacity to be our salvation. Only Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He was a human being who could do divine things. He was a divine being who could do human things. He was only he was the only one uniquely qualified at that particular time to be salvation for all of us. And once we realize that, our only response is gratitude. First Peter underscores this point so beautifully in the passage that Brian read for us that Christ suffered for us, Peter says, that Christ took in His own body, the Bible said, took in His own body the sins that we've committed, and by, by His wounds we were healed. Regardless of how you feel about all the blood stuff, let there be no mistake. Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. And our only response is to be thankful. We all know of the name Rembrandt, one of the great painters in the history of, of art. There's a particular painting called The Three Crosses that's displayed in the Rijk Museum in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. It's a museum that the girls and I had the joy of visiting four years ago when we visited the Netherlands. And I'll never forget this painting. It is a stark black and white rendition of the crucifixion. It's Jesus hanging on the cross, and on either side of Him are the two thieves. It's entirely in black and white with lots of shadows and shades of gray, off to the fringe, lots of shadows, and then in the middle of it is a bright picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, almost as if the inbreaking of God's light were pouring down from heaven in the midst of the darkness of sinful humanity. And art critics have noticed and have surmised that as they look at a particular figure painted in the shadowy fringe of that painting, there's, a, there's an image of a man whose face is concealed by his hands. His, his whole body is leaning down and his head is buried in his hands. And art critics have surmised that that image of that person is none other than Rembrandt himself, that he had actually painted his own personage into that painting as a firsthand witness to what Jesus has done, as a way of sharing with the entire world that it should have been him hanging on that cross because of the sins that he himself acknowledged in his life, the things that he had done and the ways that he could not save himself, he had his hands buried, not in horror, not in fear of all the blood, but out of guilt 
and out of a profound sense of gratitude. Now, brothers and sisters, in a few moments, we're going to invite you forward for communion. You're going to share in the body of Christ, and you're going to share in the blood of Christ. Regardless of how you feel about this particular theory, let that moment of communion be for you a reminder that God has done for you something that you could not do for yourself. Acknowledge all of the ways that you feel lost, all the things that are, that are competing within your spirit, all the sins that you wage war with on a daily basis, your addictions, the shadow side of yourself, the rough edges of your personality, all the things that are holding you back from living the kind of free and joyful life that God has intended for you. And then acknowledge all the ways that you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to save yourself. And as you drink of that blood, realize this. God has done it for you. You do not need to save yourself. All you need to do is receive it and receive it with gratitude. Let's pray together. Oh God, how grateful we are for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you for fulfilling the sacrificial system of old to present to us a salvation that is new every morning. God, we acknowledge to you our sins. We confess to you the ways that we are truly human and acknowledge all the ways that we are separated from each other and from you and from the fullest expression of ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to save ourselves. It's our knack, it's our habit to try to do it on our own. But here in this moment, and especially in this act of communion, we surrender ourselves to you and ask that your cleansing power, the work of the blood of your Son, Jesus, might set us free and help us to live the life you've called us to live. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.